I think for the most part, though, most of the public servants were just so overwhelmed by the volume of issues and media interest and it, it was like not being able to see the forest for the trees. We became very distracted with things that did not matter. Mm, the trouble is the trees were falling on lots of people. I know. Welcome to the Westminster tradition where we are unpacking lessons for the public service, starting with the RoboDebt Royal Commission. In 2019, after three years, RoboDebt was found to be unlawful. Through the Royal Commission process, we've found it was also immoral and wildly inaccurate. Ultimately, the Australian government was forced to pay $1.8 billion back to more than 470,000 Australians. My name is Alison Lloyd-Wright, and I'm here with my fellow South Australian public servant, Caroline Crozabarlo. Hello, Alison. And recovering public servant, Danielle Elston. Hello, Alison. And this episode, we're going to talk about what DHS do when things start going off the rails. So how did they even know things were going off the rails? Well, by early 2017, uh, there's quite a lot of media going on. And so media was like... The strong first, hint. Strong yeah. hint. Strong <laughs> hint. Uh, there's a, a serious amount of... Um, of stories in the media kind of bubbling up over Christmas and immediately after Christmas. And so, uh, you know, they're all on leave, but, you know, Tudge has to come back from overseas to, to be the minister dealing with this issue. And so they're hearing all this media, but what is so fascinating is how they respond to it. So they have a kind of two or three pronged thinking about it. They hear the media, they're convinced it's inaccurate, they're like, oh, that one's not really a robo-debt or, you know, this person is an outlier for a particular reason that no other person would experience that kind of thing. Which I have to say, having had media reporting on various programs I've run or been involved in, does happen. Does happen, right? Like All the time, because it turns out every individual complainant is different from every other individual complainant. So there's something there, right? Yeah. But it was maybe not an unreasonable assumption to go, oh, no, like, that's at the margins. That's not really indicative of a bigger problem. But how did they respond? We got some really interesting testimony from Rochelle Miller, who was the media advisor to Minister Tudge at the time. And she talks us through their kind of four-point media strategy. So the first and kind of most controversial element of this strategy was about placing stories in friendly media, as she talked about it, about the effectiveness of their crackdown on welfare cheats. So this was giving Roy Hadley stories to talk about in the radio about how RoboDebt was catching someone who declared no income and actually they were earning $100,000 as a cabbie. So that was one element of their strategy. Mm. A second element was to point out that Labor did it first. Like, there was a very strong line of averaging. Classic. Yeah, that's right. It's classic in the form. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the third was they liked to talk about the new technologies and behavioural insights that were driving this. So a bit of woo-woo language. I look forward to taking you through our episode on behavioural insights. And woo-woo language in general. Oh, man. <laughs> and then the last one, which was, again, one of the most controversial elements, was they would de debunk the individual stories. And it got to the point where they were releasing data about individuals to media saying this is what this individual's customer's circumstances are, which is obviously deeply unethical and deeply I was going to say, look, there, are, there is elements of this that is regular political strategy. There are elements of this that are experiences around one story is not the story of a million people the bit that where the wheels fall off any kind of thoughtfulness around this is handing out personal information to media outlets like, like that's just where 
their strategy goes from using tools that exist problematically and not excellently to, you know, deeply really worrying kind of behaviour for the trust that we place in government with our personal data. And I think, you know, they, they sort of test both Rochelle Miller and Minister Tudge on this a little bit in the Royal Commission. I think they felt quite virtuous in this action. So their argument is you need to maintain faith in the system. You have to have the true story out there about that. So these scurrilous newspapers are writing scurrilous stories that aren't true and you have to come back with the truth to make sure that everyone knows the system is good and that this is not a problem. Deeply troubling, right? Deeply troubling, but also they didn't know the system and they didn't even know the facts of a lot of these. So, So the department was unable to provide perfect facts and they didn't understand the system. So ethically it's troubling and effectiveness-wise, it's they're just wrong. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But isn't it also a, like, you know, to quote Principal Skinner from The Simpsons, no, it is the people who are wrong. Um, <laughs> like, like, it's just it's just that they don't understand a very complex system. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously... Yes, from time to time you'll get individual complaints, but but it's because they can't see the entirety of the picture. And I think what happens here is there's a um, there's a disregard for users of government services who go to the media to try and resolve something. Absolutely, as a principle. Yeah. Um, and yet, from my perspective, government is very hard to do anything else. And so, if you if you don't have an effective mm-hmm. complaint management system, there's no switchboard you can call to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. There's I mean, no, there wasn't even a phone number on the letter. No phone at this number point. on the letter. <laughs> and even if it was, it was a Centrelink phone number. And, you know, mm. having had to ring that occasionally in my life, I'm not sure that's an actual solution in itself. And so, you, so you're left with the media yeah. calling talk back, writing a letter to the editor, going on social media, like all sorts yeah. of things like that. And then government still seems to have a view that there's something slightly off about you if you use the media instead of the process with my finger inverted commas. When the process doesn't work, or half the time, doesn't exist at all. There was something very compelling about the way that Rochelle Miller talked about thinking there was a campaign against it. So there was this sense that they were in a political fight mm. and mm. therefore anyone on the other side of it was An the opposition. organised part of yep. a campaign. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was a real kind of Donald Trumpish kind of fake news. Like it was a very gaslighting experience i think for the people involved on the other side of this but also slightly supported by the department who were then looking them in the eye and saying oh the phone number's not on the letter but by and large this is fine Mm -hmm. and so they were being supported in that oh completely they were being supported in that view that it was um not a systemic problem but a you know a couple of individuals who might be being supported by an opposition campaign etc etc a lot of time and energy going into not figuring out whether there's something wrong with the system well and then and i think we'll get to this in a future episode rochelle miller has almost a threshold revelation at some point when a liberal staffer comes to her to complain that they have received a robo-debt letter relating to times that they were in receipt of benefits while studying. And that's the moment where she realises, yeah, maybe it's not some opposition orchestrated smear job. Yeah. 
if people she knows, mm-hmm. if people like her could have been affected, then maybe there's something serious here. It's really, really fascinating, isn't it? There's definitely a demonisation which stops them from seeing the people impacted as humans. I mean, I think the other kind of big defensive tactic that they used was that they were really focused on improving customer engagement. So the ombudsman's doing some inquiries at this point in time and they engage with the ombudsman insofar as they're like, yeah, we should put a phone number on the letter or we should make the letters plain English and easier to read or whatever, right? So they do make changes. As the kids would say. (laughs) Um, they do make changes and then the changes become part of the defensive strategy because Mm. what then happens is that the next complaint that comes up they're like oh yeah but that was like the last time that was under the old system before we had improved the letter and before we put the phone number on it so there's this kind of iterative uh, defensiveness that's going on as well And so externally they've got this really strong defensive strategy no no nothing to see here it's all fine Was that the case internally in DHS? No. Like, internally, they are at DEFCON 5 panic stations. Everything is bad. And it's really interesting hearing the testimony from lots of different parts of the business because it's clear that many different parts of the business thought things were going badly. So... The project team themselves are like, oh, my God, we should never have gone live with this. We told you not to go live with this. This is rushed. We're not ready to deliver at this scale, blah, blah, blah. The senior executive is like, oh, things are going badly. And one of the fazzers, um, Karen Harfield, says to Melissa Golightly, I think we should press pause and call it a major emergency. And Melissa Golightly, in Karen Harfield's testimony, goes crazy, like yells at her and says under no circumstances, you know, blah, blah, blah. Wow. The media team are like, oh, my God, this is being handled so badly. Maybe they need a comms strategy. But, you know, so there's no one who thinks that this is going well. Can I just stop you for a second, Caroline, on that? On uh, And even the Rochelle Miller and the comms strategy, having had those roles as head of comms before, it's one of the most challenging roles I've had in public service where you find the broken thing but you don't have any operational control mm. over it. Yeah. And so you're in the trying to fix it or at least point out how broken it is. Yep. But it's not your thing. And yeah. so, I mean, so they were asking – the comms people were saying let's do a comm strategy but they were also saying they're often the only people in a department saying to Maybe leadership, this is not – being received well like I don't know what bubble you people are living in but my job is to know what people are saying in public and right now they're saying we're getting this really wrong yeah and it's a really tough job it is I mean it makes me think um I mean two things one you know as you know we often call the comms team like the kind of you know the 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 gloss you put on the end but often comms are like doing the biggest policy work in an agency right because Absolutely. they're the ones thinking about the translation of idea to frontline experience yep. they're the only ones thinking about that they're the ones i always think who are most connected to outside the building yeah yeah and less connected to academic courses you've been on or even you know parliamentary process or you know cabinet process they're less thinking about that and more thinking about when we open the doors on this new program how do you walk in how do you shut the door behind you how do i and often when you're with a project and they look at you and they're like what and you're like 
all those questions. And they're like, no, 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 it's an innovative. And they give you all these words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of comms words. Woo, woo. Comms words, really. And you're like, sure, but how do I log on or whatever? So I really think it's interesting that it appears to me that often comms raise their hands, belt the cat a bit, and then kind of walked out. Obviously, they weren't getting very far. No, well, exactly. And I think in this particular case, there's a lot of evidence about how tightly the comms talking points were held and that they all had to be approved through the DEPSEC and Melissa Go Lightly and that there was no kind of flexibility in the strategy. And that the strategy really was to say everything is fine, there's nothing wrong, we've just got some teething issues was kind mm. of a constant framing of that. But despite that being what they were saying, you know, it's clear that the secretary thought things were not brilliant. So she brings in PwC to develop a fixer-upper strategy. She engages Data61 at CSIRO because the Prime Minister actually directs her to do that because wow. he wants to make sure that they're, like, actually using all this data, algorithm, computer things Although properly. his evidence seemed to me to be just a pet project. Like, no, not just a pet project, but the passion with which he could speak about this data project he had set up at the CSIRO. So the a Prime lot. Minister is Malcolm Turnbull. Yep. And he's able to talk in a, with a degree of granularity about their role and function um, that tells me that they were also brought in just because everybody knew that the Prime Minister thought they were, like, awesome. Yeah, and maybe that says something about what's going on for Catherine Campbell at that time is she's thinking about how do I line up people to regain confidence in what we're doing and and that's I think a big part of what she's doing and even the minister is like deeply engaged in trying to fix it like you know there's classic evidence where he talks about rewriting the letters like oh I'm going to make these letters user friendly because Alan Tudge is in touch with the common person with the people He's, man of the people he is and then there's great testimony from like the ASO 6 or whatever who says oh, and then we had to rewrite it because it was illegal and you couldn't send it out that way it's good they were worried about the technicalities at that point again always seem <laughs> missing the main bit of these things like the minister spending his time when you go to roles and responsibilities in a Westminster tradition mm -hmm. the minister spending his time going well this letter's a bit confusing I think I'll reword it slightly more simply for a common man or common person audience but not stepping back and going I want two hours I want you to start with whether this is legal and I want you to step me through yeah. this entire process the legislation yep. that underpins it the budget implications of it like, yep. that evidence is they spent hours, nights, oh, he weekends. He, he comes this, back from holiday he, to he write his letters. He and the secretary letters. are sitting around spending hours doing this but not doing what I think the job in the system is, which is could mm. someone answer these 12 key questions for me, please? Wow. But he is doing the job of defending it super assertively. So despite doing all of this work in the back end, he is on radio every day saying... This is lawful. There's nothing to see here. It's a media beat up. Everything's fine. We're making a few tweaks. It's just about encouraging customer engagement. And that's it. And so you've got, on the one hand, the agency doesn't want to look like they don't have this under control, but actually internally they do not have this under control <laughs> and they're bringing yeah, in all sorts of external advice. Absolutely. There's a really great um, Chris Birra, who's now the Deputy CEO at Services SA at Services Australia, gives some really excellent uh, testimony to the Royal Commission, where he just kind of picks over what he thinks went wrong. He wasn't there at the time. He came in a few years later, but his um, his evidence at this this point is he's like, oh, in fact, well, let's just listen to him. Let's listen. Where do you think the ability of the public service to provide independent feedback to 
the government, the ministers, about identified shortcomings in the system broke down? I think uh, there was insufficient attention given to providing uh, written advice which conveyed uh, the realities, be cautious about uh, the identification of potential benefits and to also be cautious to ensure that risk is, is, is appropriately conveyed around projects. The impression I have is that, particularly in the early stages of robo-debt, there wasn't a lot of advice that was putting forward either potential risks or, or realised risks and, uh, uh, and that there was an attempt to essentially make it look like everything was going fine. So one of the things, one of the things that's really apparent in this time is the mismatch between what's happening internally in DHS and the external narrative. So they're ferociously defending, but also they're fixing on the inside. How are they managing that dichotomy, right? The maintaining faith in a system, but also driving change. Have you guys ever been in one of those big fixer-upper while you're driving, you know, build the plane as it's going situations? Yes, but mostly during COVID, where I think everyone was forgiven. Ah, fascinating. For building it while you were flying it. And you could almost explain that, couldn't you? Yeah. You could say to the public, and in fact, I think that was a metaphor that was used at various points in time, was people said that. I remember, was it the Danish Prime Minister who said something like, you know, we're making 90% of our decisions with 10% of the available That's information? Right. That's right. Yeah. But then that became its own problem when people were like, these decisions over time appear to be inconsistent. And it's because you got more and more information yeah. that rendered some of your earlier decisions unsuitable. And also, I think, yeah, that's it exactly right. It was the largest experiment in making public policy in public one step at a time with, with like bugger all information. But also yeah. with like yeah. total openness to we don't know what the next step is or next week is, but we will tell you when we know. So there's a certain amount of community consent that this doesn't have. And so that in that sense, it's really quite different, I think. I think my experience of the, the fixer-upper has been in opening new agencies with a deadline that couldn't be moved no matter what was going to happen <laughs> and just continuing to to have to pull additional resources in those final few months and do that bit of, well, that will get this project, this thing open, yeah. but we'll have to do X, Y, Z afterwards that we kind of have planned to do before we finish, but we're not going to get there in time. Which is a big exercise in risk management, right? It's like, oh. what can you live without and what can't you live without? Exactly. And so it seems to me that one of the problems here with RoboDebt was always that there were some assumptions that were not as well tested as they could have been. Is that fair? Not in any way tested? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and I think we've all been in situations where there's certain assumptions that are made about why people behave the way they do or how systems operate that are just kind of taken as gospel. Yeah. So but I'm what would have happened if they'd answered those media inquiries differently? So there has to be a certain understanding. The media doesn't want to hear, we're not sure we're looking at it. You've got about a day for that, um, which is an unfortunate part of the media landscape. 
and a part of the the kind of lack of trust problem, which is sometimes we do need yeah like a month minimum yeah. and then a SWAT team for something super super complicated. But the thing is, you're from a political perspective, you're not on top of it if you can't give me an answer today. Yeah, and that lends itself to the everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish people could have seen your facial on that team. Perfect, and so. If while all of this was going on, they'd taken a different approach, which is what I would like to see done more in government, although when it happens, leaders are often punished for that kind of honesty. Yeah. If the secretary and or the minister could have said, we're pausing it and here's why, we're not saying we're wrong, because at this point they don't believe they are. No, no, no. no. Exactly. I'm not talking about sword falling or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's how I'll be open and transparent about what I'm worried about and what's going to happen next... There would have been years shaved off the harm of this program. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that would have been well received either. Yeah, like I, that's such a good point. I'm thinking about the one time I think this has really happened to me is I um, inherited very quickly, like, you know, without much um, thought about it, a, a new division that had just rolled out a big funding model change. So they were kind of like six months into the new funding model. And... It's clear, to Alison's point, a range of assumptions have been made in that mm. funding model, like, you know, assumptions that the users would be able to uh, express what was needed to be expressed in this application form, that my team would be able to consistently make decisions across thousands of applications, which it turns out it's actually really hard to make consistent decisions across a thousand applications. So there was a range of assumptions and it became clear pretty quickly that things weren't weren't going well, but... Stopping was never an option. Yep. So we'd already decommissioned the old funding model and we were putting heaps more money out is the other thing. So as clunky and terrible as the funding model was, actually, you know, more money going out to more things and that was good. And so there I am. I think part of why I was able to walk that line a little bit was because I was new in, right? So I hadn't done the design work and whatever. So it was easier for me to come in and say, hey, do we think with all best intentions we've designed a thing that maybe doesn't actually fit reality? So that gets you so far, but it doesn't get you very long. Like I reckon that lasted me three months and then after that, the stakeholders were all rightly saying, well, why haven't you fixed it yet? And it turns out some things are too complex to fix really quickly. And I don't – I think the way that you can do it is you have to have your stakeholders in the tent with you. So you can't do it in the media. It can't be a yeah. media conversation. It has to be one where the stakeholders are willing to come out and say, hey, we also thought this thing might work. And actually, it's not working, but I can see that the department's working really hard to fix it, and we're in that tent on fixing it. And I think maybe that is what DHS here were constitutionally incapable of doing. Yeah, because you have to be able to have some of those trusted conversations with some of your stakeholders and say, hey, guys, this isn't quite panning out the way we thought it would. Let's let's investigate it together um, and trust that they will not then show up at a press conference Later yes. that day, I was going to say until until they go saying the department that. admits yeah. that it was a mistake, yeah. and that's the the risk of it. And you need a lot of trust with your stakeholders, and the stakeholders here were not did not have relationships with this with the government at all, at all. But also, there is you know stakeholders have relationships with departments when they don't have them with ministers. Yeah, and it's important. I think it's really important that departments keep those relationships with stakeholders, even if they are stakeholders that are not friendly with the government of the day. 
because the work of government goes on. And yeah. departments shouldn't shift and change who they're meeting with to get the feedback and build those trust and relationships with based mm. on ministerial stakeholder relationships. If only for the reason that it doesn't work, and this is a really good example of how it doesn't work. So Catherine Campbell couldn't call um, ACOS, ACOS mm-hmm. and say, just talk me through what you think it is. With all- And so where are you getting all of that from? Yeah. yeah. And, and you've got total confidence as, as smart, the biggest leaders in social welfare... You're really sure. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Mm. And so I think that there's a huge lesson there in that defensive thing, which is they did not have anyone to tell them these things. And there's something I think that's about where this project came from as well. So it came from the compliance division, right, who aren't your kind of policymakers who go out and do all of the kind of glad-handing with the stakeholders. So They're true. Not. So I think there is... For a, a reason. Yeah. You don't usually send your <laughs> compliance team out to give conference presentations. <laughs> Indeed. And so it, there's something... You're so right, Danielle. There is something about no one so had those relationships. Melissa Golightly is new into the department as the depth sec, so she doesn't have the relationships just from like not having you know been there for very long and I think there was a there was a bunkered mentality that you were with the government on this and that was very clear at the secretary level is that kind of you were progressing a government agenda and that it would have been viewed in some ways as kind of um disloyal and Renee Leon well Renee Leon actually talks about this Mm. when she talks about why she was moved from the department for employment to the department for human services which was viewed as a bit of a demotion and she talks about how she felt that the government thought she was too close to the other stakeholders Mm. to the other side Mm. fascinating not excellent westminstering we can say there yeah so you need to be able to maintain relationships across the full spectrum, which you can only do if everyone understands that it's in the best interests of the minister, of the department and the stakeholders that you have functional lines of communication. And the public. Oh, yeah, the public. Whoops, forgot about them. Best not forget about them. Till next time. <laughs> this podcast was recorded on Ghana land and we recognise Ghana elders past and present. Always was, always will be. Just some appropriately bureaucratic disclaimers. Those of us in the employ of the state government speak in a strictly personal capacity, consistent with the Public Sector Code of Ethics that permits public servants to promote an outcome in relation to an issue of public interest, in this case, the betterment of the public service. Nothing we say should be taken as representing the views of the government or our employers. While we've tried to be as thorough in our research as busy full-time jobs and lives allow, we definitely don't guarantee that we've got all the details right. If you want rigorous reporting on robo-debt, we recommend the work of Rick Morton at The Saturday Paper, Chris Naus and Luke Enrique Gomez at The Guardian, Ben Eltham at Crikey, and of course, the Robodebt Royal Commission itself. The first eight episodes were recorded before the Royal Commission launched its final report and so don't benefit from the great wisdom of Commissioner Holmes. Please feel free to email us corrections, episode suggestions or anything else at the Westminster Tradition Pod at gmail.com. Thanks to Pampot Audio for our intro and outro music. Till next time.